Well, good morning. If you turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 12, and uh, while you're turning there, just a special thanks again for everyone who helped with the church in the park last week. It was just a beautiful day to see how uh, God just cleared out the weather for us, brought a number of visitors out, and uh, just a great time. So thank you all for uh, making that happen. I needed a lot of people to bring that together, and grateful for all of you. So Mark chapter 12, we'll be uh, starting at verse 38 and reading to verse 44. Mark chapter 12, verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he calls his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. When I was growing up, I took uh, piano lessons from the time I was about five years old up until about 18. And uh, when I got a little bit older, uh, my parents told me that I didn't have to take piano lessons if I didn't want to take piano lessons. And it wasn't that I really hated the piano. I occasionally liked to play the piano. But given the choice between playing sports and playing the piano, sports always won. So I didn't like to practice a whole lot. But I thought to myself, my parents had uh, invested all this money for me to take lessons, and I had taken them for so long, and I felt like I would be letting them down if I quit taking lessons. So I kept taking lessons, but I still didn't practice. So I put on the appearance that I was a good student, and uh, sometimes I would get to my lesson, and there would be particular songs that I was supposed to practice, and I honestly wouldn't even remember which songs they were that I was supposed to practice. And so I'd get there right before the, the lesson, I'd open up the books and try to find out which ones I was supposed to do, you know, and then go confidently up there and, and put them up and then try to play them. And sometimes I did okay, sometimes it was kind of disaster, or I might just practice one time before. But the height of my hypocrisy was one day uh, when me and my brother would take lessons together. I would usually go first, or he would go first, would go one after the other. And this particular day, I went first. And I hadn't practiced very much. But for some reason, I did really well. And the teacher was, I don't know if he was in a good mood or what, but he was like, you are really getting it. You're really starting to catch on. I'm so proud there, you know, thinking to myself, I fooled him. (laughs) Then my brother comes up, and he also didn't like to practice. But he was a lot younger than me, so he couldn't get away with it as much as I could. You know, and he didn't do so well. And so the teacher told him, You just need to be more like your brother. Your brother is really starting to get it. And I'm thinking to myself, yes, he thinks I'm a good student finally. I I loved putting on the appearance. I loved when my parents came to a recital and clap and say they're so proud of me. But I, I didn't really like playing the piano all that much. It's kind of similar to how the scribes acted and approached their worship of God. They put on the appearance of religiosity. They put on the appearance of holiness, but they didn't really love God. Jesus says that they love the 
to wear long robes. They would wear long white robes that would distinguish them from the other people. And these long white robes, people would look at them and say, that person is a religious person. That person is a holy person. They liked the greetings in the marketplace. When a rabbi would go through the marketplace, everyone was required to stand except for laborers. Everyone else was required to stand. They loved to hear people call them rabbi or master or father. It says that they liked the best seats in the synagogue. The seats in the synagogue that were reserved for the scribes and religious leaders were uh, in the front or on the sides. And they would be faced toward the congregation. And so everyone would look up and see them. They'd be on a pedestal, so to speak. And they'd see, oh, those are the religious people. Those are the holy people. Those are the people who have it all together. And they love to have that place of prominence in front of the people. It says that they love the seat of honor at feast. These, were the, these would be the seats closest to the hosts. And so these were the seats that were reserved for the important people, the people of significance. And so they loved to have that distinction, that they were important, that they meant something. He goes on and says that they, for a pretense, make long prayers. For pretense or for appearance sake, they make long prayers. Matthew 6, 5 said that the hypocrites love to stand on the corners, the street corners, or in the synagogue and say their prayers out loud and go long so that everyone would see and know how religious and holy they were. They might pray something like this, like a Pharisee prayed in the book of Luke. God, most gracious, holy, merciful God, I humbly and graciously beseech thee today and would like to express my utmost and sincere gratitude that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector over there. But I have a heart that follows after you. I give a tenth of all that I have to the temple. I read and I study the scriptures daily. I perform all the duties of the temple faithfully. And so they were using their prayer as a means to impress other people. For people to look at them and say, that person is righteous. That person is holy. But meanwhile, they're neglecting the poor. Meanwhile, they're treating people unjustly. It says in the text that they were devouring widows' households. We don't know exactly what they were that they were doing to devour widows' households. But we know from the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 7... That they didn't treat family members with respect or honor. In Mark chapter 7 it says, But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So in that instance in the book of Mark, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees would teach people that you can take the money that was reserved to take care of your parents and you can say it's korban or dedicated to God. And if it's dedicated to God, then you can say, I can't help you. I can't help you, parent, mother, father, because I've given it all to God. And so in that way, they were nullifying the word of God. In our instance, uh, there's a story that's reminiscent of what might be happening here. The, the historian Josephus tells a story about a person who claimed to be a scribe, pretended to be a scribe, and he got this very wealthy widow to donate a whole bunch of money. And then after she donated that money, he embezzled that money and used it inappropriately. And perhaps that's what's happening here. They were manipulating widows to, giving, to give them their money and then using it inappropriately.
Last week in the park, we looked at a scribe who came up to Jesus and asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he, Jesus said, basically, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's about loving God, loving people. And we looked at the idea of how it's easier to give God something than to give God everything. It's easier to give him some kind of religious devotion than to really have a relationship with him and give him our hearts. And this story kind of provides a a case study or an example of what that looks like. At the root of what's happening here for for the scribes in general was that there was hypocrisy. That everything they did was a production or a show. It was all about other people. Now when we think about hypocrisy, sometimes there's some confusion about what hypocrisy is. A person who sincerely is following after Jesus and yet struggles with sin, who falls short, that doesn't mean that they're a hypocrite. It's all about the matter of the heart. A true follower of Jesus follows Jesus because he or she wants to know and obey Jesus. But a hypocrite follows Jesus because they want other people to think of them as righteous or holy or like they have it all together. Kyle Eidelman describes hypocrites this way. He says, these religious types were the fans that Jesus seemed to have the most trouble with. Fans who will walk into a restaurant and bow their heads to pray before a meal, just in case someone is watching. Fans who won't go to R-rated movies at the theater, but have a number of them saved on their DVR at home. Fans who may feed the hungry and help the needy, and then they make sure they work it into every conversation for the next two weeks. Fans who make sure people see them put in their offering at church, But they haven't considered reaching out to their neighbor who lost a job and can't pay the bills. Fans who like seeing other people fail because in their minds it makes them look better. Fans whose primary concern is raising their children, in raising their children, is what other people think. Fans who are reading this and assuming I'm describing someone else. Fans who have worn the mask for so long, they've fooled even themselves. One of the biggest objections that unbelievers bring against Christianity is the charge of hypocrisy. And it's really a strong charge because there are many people in the church that are hypocrites. There are many Christians or people in the church who are hypocrites, who put on a show that it's all about a production. But that charge that people bring against the church, it it kind of loses esteem when you realize that even Jesus knew that there would be hypocrites. Jesus knew. It didn't catch him by surprise. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Jesus isn't surprised by the presence of hypocrites in the church. And the reason is that hypocrites can get into the church because there's a certain satisfaction that we can gain from being religious. Think of it this way. You know, you you come to church, and as you're coming to church, you drive by your neighbor's driveway, and you see that their car is in the driveway. And you think to yourself, they must be sleeping, or they must be doing something else. I'm really, I have it all together. I'm going to worship God. And, you know, and we kind of can puff ourselves up and think, I'm better than that other person because they're not going to church. Or we see the offering plate pass by and we put our offering in the offering plate and we see the person next to us doesn't. And we think to ourselves, oh, I must be holier than that person. 
or we read the Bible or we pray and we think, well, I don't think other people pray or read the Bible as much as I do. I wish they did as much as I do. And so Christianity can lead itself to the charge of hypocrisy because there is this certain satisfaction that we can gain from spiritual exercises. And there are some people who do those things who are in the core of who they are. They're hypocrites. And that, that's just who they are. The whole thing is a show. It's, there's no desire to know God, no desire to obey God. It's all about what other people see. There's some people who are like that. But Christians, followers of Jesus, maybe they're not complete hypocrites, but we can also be hypocritical. We can act in ways that are hypocritical. But Jesus gives us a warning, a stern warning for those who are hypocrites, who Christianity is all a show, and for those of us who maybe are believers in Jesus, we're following after Jesus, but we can act hypocritical. And he says those who are hypocrites will receive the greater condemnation. And the word in Greek designates excessive or abundant judgment. That if we use religiosity, if we use religion as a means of puffing ourselves up to make ourselves look better than other people, that there's judgment coming for us. But no matter what we are, if we're a hypocrite or we've, we've just acted hypocritical, we can turn to Christ at any point. There's grace and mercy that's found in Him. When we turn to Him and follow Him with a severe, a sincere and devoted heart. And Jesus tells a story about someone who follows Jesus with a sincere and devoted heart. Jesus is sitting opposite the treasury and He's watching as people are coming in and putting their offering in the treasury. And it says in the text that there were people who were putting a lot of money in the treasury. And you can imagine in that day that you know, it was usually coins, not paper money or checkbook. They were carrying probably bags of coins into the temple. And you can kind of imagine them kind of walking proudly into the temple and making sure to clang around the coins a little bit and slowly throwing them one after one into the treasury. And all the people look around and say, that person must be holy. Look at all that money that they're giving to the temple. But then a widow comes in. Her hair is probably disheveled. Her clothes are probably old and tattered. And she comes and brings an offering that's so small that it's just insignificant. A denarius was about a day's wage, and this amount that she brings, two small copper coins, would have been about one-sixty-fourth of a denarius. One-sixty-fourth of a day's wage. These were the smallest units of currency that were available during this time in circulation. And she comes and she brings those small copper coins, puts them in the treasury. You have to imagine she was probably a little bit embarrassed after seeing all these people bring these big bags of money and putting them into the treasury. And then she walks in with these two small copper coins. But this widow, this person who had no significance in society, who had little resources, she comes and she puts in all that she has into the offering plate. And Jesus commends her for that. See, a gift that costs something means, means more than a gift that brings something. For the Pharisees, for the scribes, their gift was about showing their spirituality to those around them. They brought their gift and they're looking for the praise of men. 
They did their religious exercises so that people would see how holy they were. So that they would go to the marketplace and people would say, Rabbi, Father. So that people would recognize them by their long garb. But this woman has nothing to show for herself. And she brings all that she has and puts it in the offering box. The philanthropist and investor Warren Buffett once made a donation for $30 billion to to the um, Gates Foundation. And after he made that donation, he made some statements. I don't have the exact quote, but the paraphrase is something like this. He says, my gift has not changed my lifestyle one bit. I still go to the movies I want to go to, eat at the restaurants I want to dine at. But what about the person who gives a gift that requires they can't go to the movies or eat out? They are the true givers, the true heroes of generosity. A gift that costs something means more than a gift that brings something. And God has been so gracious to us. He's given us all so many things. He's given us talents, abilities, skills. He's given us time. He's given us resources. And He's given those things not so that we could just keep them for ourselves, but so that we could be a blessing to those around us. Throughout the scripture, he doesn't just bless so that we can just enjoy things and live our merry life. He blesses so that we might be a blessing. And so we give back to him a portion of what he's given to us because of what he's done for us. And so we sing out our praises to him, not so the people around us will look at us and say, oh, that person is spiritual. But we sing out to him because he saved us, because he's given his son to die on the cross for us. We give our time And our talent to Him because Christ has served us. We give our money so that God's kingdom might advance. So that people might come to know the reality of what God has done in Jesus. Sometimes what we do is we give God the leftovers. Sometimes whatever is left over, we decide we're going to give to God. Whatever is left over of our time, we'll give to God. Whatever is left over, if we have a little bit extra money, we'll give it to Him. And we give what's left over to him. And the problem with that is that it's kind of like an investment. If you invest a little, you'll only get a little. And I'm not talking about a kind of a health wealth thing where, you know, you give $5 and you're going to get back 100 That's not what I'm talking about at all. But if we only invest a part of ourselves in what God is doing, we are, we're not going to get the joy of seeing all the things that he can do through us. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Stephanie and I were in Tylertown, Mississippi, and I was preaching at uh, the church down there. And that church has helped us in, for a number of years, and they've sent up missions teams that have helped us paint and uh, do our church in the park and do outreach in the neighborhood and helped in a number of ways. Um, and I brought a plaque down there, and it was just basically said, you know, thank you and, and whatnot, and it was signed from I Hope Community Church, Buffalo, um, whatnot. And I told them, so imagine, you know, you guys have spent all this time and all this, these resources to come and help us. And so when you see this plaque, may it not just be a plaque, but may it be a reminder of your investment in Buffalo. And I said, so imagine you get to heaven and uh, God takes you into this room. And on, on the walls of this room, there are all these plaques representing all the different things uh, that you, your church has been a part of. And for them, you know, one of the plaques would be Buffalo. And they had all, you know, a whole bunch of other things that they've done. 
you know, for us, it, you know, it might be one plaque represents church in the park. One represents breakfast with Santa. One represents uh, media ministry or worship ministry or outreach in the community. And so there's all these plaques around this room. And then imagine you, as you're walking through, God is there and he takes you on a tour. And he shows you all the things that have happened because of those efforts. All the things since IHOPE started until IHOPE is closed. And he shows you all the effects of things that you could never even imagine. You know, maybe a a kid who comes to breakfast with Santa and then gives his life to Christ and becomes a missionary years later. Things that we can't even think about or we don't know, see the effects on earth. And he tells us all these stories about the effects of what what the church's work has done. And then you look and below each of those plaques representing those different ministries, you see a bunch of names. You see names of people who have supported them financially, helped fund them, people who have served, people who have made those events happen. How sad would it be if you look around the room and you don't see your name anywhere? And you say, I went to IHOPE. I mean, maybe not every week, but I went at least a couple of times a month. I went to Bible study. I put some change in the offering plate once in a while. And then God is like, well, that's wonderful. But did you invest in the kingdom? Did you seek to save the lost? Did you reach out to those in your community who needed me? See, we might not have a lot to offer. This widow in the story didn't have anything to offer. Two small copper coins, one sixty-fourth of a day's wages, and that's all she had to live on, it says. But God commended her. And the beautiful thing is, God can take the little bit that we have and use it in ways that we could never imagine. The smallest thing given to God can multiply exponentially. There's a group of churches in northeast India in in the state of Mizoram, and they have this practice that's been... Uh, going on for quite some time since about 1914. And they call this practice uh, Bufai Tham. And and that means one handful of rice at a time. And what they do is that at each meal, each family from the church will set aside one handful of rice that they'll give to God. And so they'll collect this rice. And after a certain amount of time, they'll go and they'll bring it to the church. And the church will then sell it to, uh, often at low cost, to poor people who need it and generate income for the ministry. In 1914, near the time when they started it, they, were, they raised about $1.50 from this, these hands full, of, hands full of rice. But over the last, year, last number of years, they've raised millions of dollars. Millions of dollars from handfuls of rice. They've also sold vegetables, firewood, and other resources. At the time that this article that I read was written, they were supporting about seventeen to 1,800 missionaries with the handful of, of rice that they brought to the church, in addition to the local ministry that they were doing. One church leader from that area said this, There are many ways of serving the Lord. Some people do great things. Some people are great preachers. Some people contribute lots and lots of money. But when we talk about this handful of rice, it's very humble. The service is done in the corner of the kitchen where nobody sees. But God knows and he blesses it. Another church member said this, 
It's not our richness or our poverty that make us serve the Lord, but our willingness. So we Mizo people say, as long as we have something to eat every day, we have something to give to God every day. God has given all of us gifts, talents, time, treasure. He's given those to us so that we might bless those around us. And it doesn't matter how small that is. We might just have a small handful of rice. But God can use that handful of rice to reach people around the world who need the gospel, who need to know him. A gift that costs something means more than a gift that brings something. It's all about our willingness to follow after God with our whole heart sincerely. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you came to the earth to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins. Lord, you've been so good to us. You've given us so much in Christ. You've given us salvation. You've given us hope. You've given us the opportunity to serve you, the opportunity to share your love with those around us. Lord, I pray that our spirituality would not be a show, that it wouldn't be filled with hypocrisy, that it wouldn't be about what other people around us are thinking, but that we would be concerned about what you're thinking, that we wouldn't want to please those around us, that most of all, we'd want to please you. And Lord, no matter what we have, whether it's a million dollars or a handful of rice, Lord, I pray that we would come to you with open arms, knowing that you can take the smallest that we have and do immeasurably more than we could ever imagine. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.